Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. A text question for you today. I dumb injured myself this weekend doing a home improvement project, and maybe I'm not alone. Perhaps you have a dumb self-inflicted wound story that you'd like to share via text at 1-800-639-9120, and I'll share my dumb injury story later in the show. I would say there's entire channels of both screen and internet dedicated to proving you're not alone in this. Happy National Poetry Month! And also with you. Coming up later in the show, we'll speak with poet and professor Martina Spada about the wide reach of his catalog, his work's connections to the underlying struggles of communities everywhere, and his National Book Award win from 2021. And right now, we have our conversation with one of the members of an organization right here in Springfield, right down Main Street from us, in fact. Wayfinder seeks to tackle the, tackle the area's many housing issues from just as many angles. And this week, they host an event that will allow people from not just the 413, but all over the country to convene and collaborate on those problems. So we spoke to one of the people involved. Today through Thursday, Wayfinders, which is right down the street from where we are here in Springfield at NEPM, is hosting a national fair housing and civil rights conference. It's the 17th annual, it's online, and it's free and open to anyone who registers uh, through Zoom. And joining us is H. John Fisher from Wayfinders, who's the fair housing manager and the coordinator of this conference Thanks for joining us. Is it too late to join in at this point if people are interested in what's upcoming in these next few days, if they care about fair housing? I think, well, it's certainly, I think we'd probably be able to fit them in some way or another. Theoretically, uh, registration ended last Friday, uh-huh. but we can probably sneak you in if you need to. Well, we'll ask all the questions, hopefully, that the people who might have been interested in this that might or not be able to get in. at least, you know, some of them. Some of Maybe them. not some all. Of, yeah. Yeah. It's a three-day conference. It's going to be yeah. a much shorter it's segment. It's going to cover quite a bit on of our ground. Show. But this is a, an important conference, and you're going to be discussing all sorts of issues when it comes to fair housing and civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the areas that's really interesting to me that you brought up in regards to this conference, John uh, Fisher from Wayfinders, is with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and how yes. that affects yes. housing and that in a way that I think people may not connect those dots. Well, I mean, actually, let's face it, healthcare, uh, housing, people's rights, people's access to things, uh, just the ability to be treated f- freely and fairly, that's, it's all tied together. Uh, we actually, this conference had just a little bit, but it, it began with a uh, two-hour morning session we did 17 years ago on uh, predatory lending. And it sort of developed out of that, and each year it kind of got bigger and bigger. But very definitely, uh, you know, just the whole fallout from uh, Roe v. Wade, access, access to clinics, what have you, is, is, you know, just one other piece of the whole puzzle. Is it because people are going to have to make that decision whether they want to remain where they live or go and find a state where they may be able to get a procedure that they were hoping to have? Is that where where those two dots connect? Among things, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a national conference, first of all. So we are, we're drawing, uh, you know, although we're located in Massachusetts, where at least some of these access rights are not so much open to question, although... I think it's probably fair to say people need to um, need to keep watching what's happening with the Supreme Court and so forth. Uh, but in any event, uh, in some parts of the country, it, 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 that's a very real choice. Uh, you are based in Springfield, but this is a national conference. It's a national conference. Let's talk, though, a little bit about some of the housing and civil rights issues that we face either in this city in particular or mm-hmm. in, in the Commonwealth 
writ large, we've heard a lot about from the Healy Driscoll administration about housing being a major issue and tenant of what mm-hmm. they hope to put forward. There's a little bit of tension between the Boston mayor, Michelle Wu, who wants to institute a well, form of rent control, a form, a form of, of rent, rent control, control that she nuances differently. And the Healy Driscoll administration doesn't seem as keen on that as mm-hmm. as a topic. What's your take on rent control? If rent control happens in Boston, could rent control happen in Northampton, where rents have skyrocketed? Could it happen in Springfield? And should it happen? It could. Well, again, this is a really very complicated issue, actually. It sounds very simple. And on the surface, something costs too much. It should be made affordable so people can be able to get to it. And that's, I mean, what I'm taking as a given that there's a a right to housing. People should have a place to live. People should not ever be forced to be on the street or live in substandard housing. So I fully understand that. At the same time, rent control is, doesn't, end up working as well as it could. Uh, it, it's a tool. Whether it's appropriate as to where to use it and how to use it, there's a lot to look at there. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, these are all complicated issues. So, it, I mean, you could say that if everyone, let's drop the price of bread to 25 cents a loaf, and on the one hand, that makes bread available, at least in the short term, but what are the other side effects of it, and how does that work out? It's easy to, I think one of the things we're really trying to do with this conference is to not just make it be simple answers. We're really trying to make it be something where people really, these are all the aspects, so let's, let's discuss it, let's see how we can do this. I think part of this also is like understanding how, like the landscape of what housing needs are and how they present themselves in a way that's accessible is very different from what people are necessarily imagining. Like getting more housing in in cities is difficult in part because of like construction needs. And like I've Mm -hmm. heard talk of like trying to reimagine it like vertically instead of just like getting other houses and putting people in houses, like Mm -hmm. how to amass like housing that is useful in a way that is also accessible seems like how do we change people's idea of what housing needs to be that actually suits the needs of the people? And really, this is a conversation that a couple of times historically we started to have it, but it hasn't really taken place well, and it really hasn't uh, isn't taking place well today. This is slightly, in one sense, slightly off subject, but very much connected with it too. Is that as an interesting fact, uh, the Springfield Standard Metropolitan Statistical Area, which is, of course, dead center to where you know the conference is taking place, um, that is in terms of Latinx Anglo segregation is the most segregated SMSA in the country. In terms of black-white, it's, I believe, 22. And that's 22 out of how many thousand? Wow. So... You know, we're, we're in this, in quotes, progressive state here, and it's very easy for people, uh, perhaps a lot of the listeners here, to, to kind of look the other way and think, oh, well, that's not quite our problem, but it is our problem very much. Is it a problem in the city of Springfield, in the city of Holyoke, or is it this so-called tofu curtain that we talk about yes. where it's everything yes. south of the tofu curtain may be more integrated, but north of the tofu curtain is not? Where, where specifically 
is the segregation most prominent in that metro area you're talking about? All of the all places. The, yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. All of the above. The places. Exactly. <laughs> it's not a line. It's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, and you can go back to, this is interesting, but you can go back to up until 19, I believe, 62, there was essentially the term redlining, which people use. Which is a racial way of dividing up housing and real estate using racism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Yes. And, and actually, it. but and, very and, systematic. And going yeah. back further, but before that, with Eisenhower and the 95 Project, too, like those, that got drawn through more ethnically diverse neighborhoods exactly. on purpose. Right. Exactly. And this, by the way, is my point, because if you look at those old maps, the red areas, so-called redlined, they were the only areas in which banks were allowed to uh, to give mortgages to people of color. So if you look at those old maps, superimpose what's on here, what's here now, and superimpose again the things I was just talking about, the degree of segregation even in the southern area of our, you know, our county, let's say, or our counties, just a part of Massachusetts, uh, which has heavier concentrations of people of color, minorities, and so forth, south of the Tofu Curtain. Uh, but you look at those, and you look at those maps from 1962, you overlay the ethnic makeup today, and to some extent you overlay the deterioration of housing because essentially it wasn't, in quotes, worth putting the effort into it uh, back in those days. So all that comes together. We're speaking with John Fisher, who's the fair housing manager of Wayfinders, who are right down the street from us here in Springfield at NEPM, but are hosting a national conference on fair housing and civil rights on Zoom with thousands of participants across the country between now and Thursday. And you mentioned you're going to be having a lot of these conversations, and uh, it's tough to come up with a panacea, a perfect answer. Rent control might not be it. Yeah. There's no perfect There's answer. There's no perfect answer. But what are some of the questions that you are most interested in, in asking and tackling at this conference that where there may be room for improvement in regards to fair housing and civil rights? Well, so many things. I mean, historically... I think we're going to try to get back to this next year, by the way, with the conference. Um, in the old days, when it was in person, we would have maybe 600 people or so all st- sitting together. And these would be people who might be community organizers, hospital administrators, attorneys, uh, police, fire, what have you. And sometimes it was a real chance for people to sit down at lunch together and really talk about exactly this sort of thing where they're not they're not just talking to the people if you will the people who are going to take whatever they say is as a given and and who are going to perhaps question and really try to start to talk about how to make that dialogue uh since covid we had to go online i think one of the pluses is that now we're drawing from 24 26 states two or three countries and um it's certainly a, a larger number of people in the conversation uh but We've, of course, lost the uh, informal groupings that we had before. I think next year we're going to try to get back to having it uh, both be in person but also have it stream live. Uh, that's, that's a slight detour, but really the answer to your question is I think this raises issues and it lets people hear the sides of things. And it's not, I don't think, again, this isn't narrow. We have, you know, 
people talking about uh, jobs, job security, about, again, certainly clinic access and, and health issues. Uh, we have uh, people from the EEOC talking about, again, job security on this. We're talking about uh, access to housing, health care, all of these things. And at least let's raise the issues. Let's try to think about how we can put this together. Coming up, more with H. John Fisher, Fair Housing Manager of Wayfinders. And a text question for you today. I dumb injured myself this weekend doing a home improvement project. I'll tell you about it later in the show, but maybe I'm not alone. Perhaps you have a dumb self-inflicted wound story you'd like to share via text at 1-800-639-9120. And Monty will share his unnecessary injury story later in the show. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Wayfinders, a Springfield-based organization, is hosting the 17th Fair Housing and Civil Rights Conference, and we talked with H. John Fisher about some of the topics they plan to cover over the course of the week. H. John Fisher is the Fair Housing Manager for Wayfinders, who are hosting a Fair Housing and Civil Rights Conference. It is global, even, uh, not just yes. in the United States, but through the, the power of technology going on through Thursday. What about eviction? There was a, a new take on what eviction was and meant because of the pandemic, because of right. people losing jobs totally unexpectedly out of nowhere. A lot of those pandemic-era uh, eviction stoppages are are going away evictions are beginning uh, to begin again how effective mm-hmm. was that pause on eviction how influential was it on fairer housing and how do landowners mm-hmm. people that own the buildings how do you deal with eviction in a fair and just way yeah uh and it, <laughs> good luck uh you, you, would you like to take that on Marty? No, uh, but I want. No, but I do. I know people who own. No, he just who wants own a, your answer. Yeah, I know. I know people who own apartment buildings that have wanted to evict somebody for what seemed like good reasons, mm-hmm. but have hard hard time doing it. And then at other times, you hear about these, you know, terrible instances of people getting evicted through tragedies that they've experienced through no fault of their own. So, is what happened during the pandemic effective in regards to dealing with fair housing and eviction? And should we move more in that direction or? Are we seeing uh, another direction now? And, yeah, and that's, again, that's a really hard question to yeah. answer. I mean, I know of situations I, uh, in, in my role at Wayfinders, uh, and, you know, I, I've actually written a book on, uh, you know, the Massachusetts, how to be a landlord in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. essentially. Landlords have a very difficult time, and they have, you know, they have mortgages that they have to pay. And really what happened is, on the one hand, pretty much eviction stopped dead, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's good because people aren't out on the streets. But in another way, I know of people who lost their property because they stopped getting paid. You know, although there were things to do about putting off foreclosure, basically people lost, lost, their, home, lost their homes, lost their income, if you will. So you've got that side of it. But again, you've got the fact that people People need a place to live. Again, we were in a particular situation. It was a particular health-related situation. And as a result, it, it took extreme measures. And I think it's a little bit too easy to say, let's just keep doing this because the, the other side effects of it are, are, are also not going to work well. And how do you put this back together? One of the things the state of Massachusetts did, and of course there were federal monies as well, was really to do 
set up a pretty good program to help people with uh, if they were behind in their mortgages or behind in their rent or behind in uh, electricity or whatever it might be. But that program's been scaled back, and it's also bureaucratic. It, it ended up, ended up costing a lot of money, obviously. And in Massachusetts, the, the take essentially has been and, and probably effectively may continue to be if money is involved, if it's about not being able to pay the rent, there are programs that should at least be tried first before you do the eviction. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's sometimes uh, eviction for real cause, uh, somebody who really is a threat to the other people in the building, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So you can't shut it off completely. You have to make it work better than it does now. H. John Fisher is the fair housing manager for Wayfinders who are hosting a fair housing and civil rights conference going on through Thursday. Another topic that I know that you're bringing up in this conference is titled Entrepreneurship as an Act of Resistance, the Intersection Between Civil Rights and Minority-Owned Businesses. Tell me a little bit about that as a topic, and are we seeing any of that here locally? We are... uh but not enough. Your deep right. side. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's the, the not enough part. Yeah. Not that, enough. That always ends up being being kind of the crux of it. It is really an important thing, and but it's, and again, especially the, the the pandemic, COVID, really slowed it down. I mean, you have so many of these uh, smaller businesses which were really you know doing something real for themselves, for the community, for everybody, uh, had a hard time making it through. And, uh, you know, so where do we go now? How do we, how do we deal with, with this sort of really the invest in your community, build in your community? How do, you, how do you make that work? And I think, like, one of the things that's a part of that that often doesn't necessarily get, get talked about in the same way is that those evictions often affect business owners as well. Like, yes. you're renting space, and then as soon as something like the pandemic happens or, like, some change happens in the general landscape of your particular industry, like, those evictions affect businesses as well in a very mm-hmm. real way that has impact on, like, housing in general and on the landscape of our community in a very, very real way. Everything, again, it's all tied together. And unfortunately, I, I can't come here and say, well, okay, this we'll do this, this, and this, and we'll be all set. Uh, and then we just get to hear people fight about it in, like, general, like, bureau- bureaucratic ways yes, <laughs> if yeah. there was an actual solution. Yeah. I, I'm very big on rolling up your sleeves and see what, what can you do locally? What can you do here now? How do you make that work? And, and again, just understanding that this is all one problem. One of the other things I, I tend to deal with a little bit, it's just one of my side things, has to do with neuroscience, technology, and so forth, which is a little bit of fuel, except in many ways it isn't. Um, for example, on, on the one hand, the assumption is very often with people of color, they have poor health outcomes. And the assumption is that's a question of access, which it actually is. But the more you study it, more you also realize that the small, the microaggressions, the, the little things that you don't necessarily, you sort of notice but don't kind of notice, constantly the difference between me walking into a store late at night, walking up and down the aisles, and a friend of mine who's black walking into the same store. If you actually looked at what happened um, 
what we report happening to us, it would be we walked up and down the aisles, we picked up something, we went to the counter, we paid for it, the clerk said thank you, we went out the door. Except it's totally different because I'm not watched in the same way. I'm not treated in the same way. Even though the clerk might be perfectly polite and what have you, there's a difference navigating through life. If I work late in the office and go to my car at midnight uh, and everything's deserted, it's a different experience for me than it is for one of my female colleagues. Uh, those kinds of things have a cumulative effect. A cumulative health effect. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and measurable, mm-hmm. and measurable, very strikingly measurable, actually. It it's shows been up good on your genes. On the trauma mm. of your grandparents yes. shows up on your genes. Generational trauma, it's real. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, there have been ex- uh, experiments, this is getting a bit of feel, but experiments with mice where they uh, actually would traumatize the f- male parents of, of the mice and associate that with a smell, for example, a smell of apple. And they find two generations down, you still have the descendants of that male who did nothing other than uh, just contribute sperm are still averse to the smell of apples. Hmm. Well, it just goes to show you that it's all connected. And it's there, all there connected. There is not one panacea or magic wand that's going to fix all these things, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and if you think you have an answer, come to the conference. Yeah. Right? Yes, like, yes. See, like stress test it. Why not? Yeah. The conference is the Fair Housing and Civil Rights Conference happening through Thursday virtually. Oh, I'm not allowed to say that, am I? <laughs> 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 I'm not allowed to say that. We'll nuance it. We'll nuance it. We'll, uh, yeah. H. John Fisher is the Fair Housing Manager for Wayfinders uh, based right down the street from these stations here in Springfield. It seems like a fascinating conference, and I can't wait to hear what comes out of it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. And full disclosure. When I bought my house, I took several classes through Wayfinders. They were incredibly helpful. Just a quick plug, Wayfinders has just a wide range of services around housing, first-time homebuyers, landlord rights, tenants' rights. We're, we're there to try to work with you if we can. Thanks to H. John Fisher for coming to the studios and speaking with us in this clearly busy time for them. Up next, it's National Poetry Month, and a near-perfect dovetail to move from an organization that handles housing issues is to a poet who used to deal with those very same issues. Professor of English, the first poet laureate of Northampton, and former tenant lawyer Martina Spada will join us. We'll delve into his catalog and more. And on Friday, we'll talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder about some of these same issues. Tracy Kidder sells a lot more books than I do. <laughs> uh, that's the plight of poetry everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I accumulated any, all the books I ever wrote, it might add up to one bestseller. <laughs> Plus, Monty needs folks to commiserate with, so we're looking for your stories of self-inflicted injuries that you've incurred. Text us at 1-800-639-9120 and tell us yours. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. It's National Poetry Month, and we are joined by poet, UMass Amherst professor, and National Book Award winner making his home in Shelburne Falls, my friend Martina Spada. Tomorrow, April 12th at 6 p.m., Martina will be reading at Greenfield Community College in the library. It's free and open to the public, and it's sponsored by the Friends of the Archibald McLeish Collection. Welcome, Martina Spada. Before we get into it, do you know anything about this Archibald McLeish collection in Greenfield Community College? Well, I know about Archibald McLeish. I know he was a major poet, and I know he lived out in this neck of the woods for a long time. 
and now you'll be reading under his banner at Greenfield Community College. Before we uh, chit-chat, do you want to set up your first poem? Sure. So you're, you know, Monty, that I, uh, many years ago, worked as a tenant lawyer uh, with a program called Su Clinica Legal. That was a legal services program for low-income Spanish-speaking tenants in Chelsea, Massachusetts, right across the Tobin Bridge from Boston. And my clients came from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, uh, Puerto Rico and the DR. They also came from Central America, El Salvador and Guatemala. They were refugees of war. And I saw what today we would call an urban climate crisis, people without heat in the winter. And that's uh, the background for this first poem, uh, which is in the current issue of The Nation. The city wears a coat to bed. The white army of winter spreads across the city. Boilers and radiators die in their sleep, their skin cold to the touch in the morning. The city wears a coat to bed. The city watches the wreath of breath rise in the kitchen. On Friday afternoons, the judges slip off their black robes and drive home. There is no light in the windows of the courthouse. There is no one to read the affidavit or sign the injunction to shove into the landlord's hand so that heat courses through the heart of the boiler and the looping hard veins of the radiator again. No one to hear the tenant's story translated, her sons and daughters shivering in their coats on the mattress, snot on their sleeves. The judges and the landlord home or stopping in a bar on the way home. She tells me instead, the lawyer who speaks Spanish and explains in Spanish why there will be no heat this weekend, why there is no one at the courthouse to listen. And still she pours her story into my ears till they swell to bursting. I walk her to the doorway of the office. The secretary is in the bathroom, the office space heater in the corner. Suddenly, I am steering the tenant out the door with the space heater in her arms. As she says, gracias, over and over, and I say, okay, okay, knowing the secretary would yell my name louder than the time a drunk with a lightning scar on his belly charged through the door naked, but for his socks and a Salvation Army blanket. The secretary would not miss the office space heater till Monday. I am the hero of this story, riding the bus home across the bridge, till I remember the words I should have said about the glowing coils too close to the mattress, how every week another fire rolls the smoldering wraith of winter through the bedroom as sons and daughters sleep, how every week EMTs tuck white sheets over bodies dead as a landlord's boiler. I will dream with eyes open of windows, the coils of space heaters and the coils of mattresses glowing in every window. That's poet Martina Spada from Shelburne Falls. who will be reading in Greenfield at Greenfield Community College tomorrow at 6. It's free and open to the public at the Greenfield Community College Library. We just uh, had on the show H. John Fisher, who is the fair housing manager at Wayfinders in Springfield. And then later this week on the show, we'll have author Tracy Kidder with his new book, Rough Sleepers, all of whom, you as well with this poem, talking about the plight of homelessness as you experienced it. 
as a tenant lawyer. How long has it been since you practiced that uh, tenant law? Well, I left the law in 1993 uh, to come here uh, and um, practice poetry, you might say, as a professor in the English department at UMass Amherst. However, the details of the poem remain sadly relevant. It was a little over a year ago that a number of people were killed in a fire in the Bronx. I believe it was 19 people, uh, and the cause was a space heater. What we tend to forget is that eviction can be lethal. Homelessness can be lethal. The winter can be lethal. It seems like it's so raw for you still, even though you haven't practiced this, you know, in light of the fact of news events. And so many of your poems do have to do with marginalized people in society. How do you stay connected, maybe not working in the trenches like you used to as a tenant lawyer, maybe not living in in the neighborhoods that you grew up in, where your dad was an activist in the same sort of way? How are you able to craft such poetry that feels... So in the moment when you are a professor at UMass and living in Shelburne Falls? It's always in the moment for me. It will always haunt me. It will uh, never go away. And again, part of it has to do with the fact that the fundamental conditions I was trying to address in my work as a lawyer are still there. It's because social progress is not linear. You know, we win, we lose. We take a step forward and two steps back. And uh, we gain ground, we lose ground. And so that struggle goes on. And it it raises existential questions for somebody like me. Why did I do what I did? Why do I do what I do? And so I'm, I'm continuing that struggle in another form as a poet. To me, it's the same struggle. Does it feel gratifying in the same way, like you're having an impact both when you were doing the, as I mentioned, in the trenches as a tenant lawyer and as inspiring people with your words as a poet? Well, I should point out that uh, being a tenant lawyer never felt gratifying. Why is that? Um, Because you were constantly up against situations like the one described in the poem. Mm -hmm. That uh, I was always dealing with uh, social forces so much greater than myself, whether I was in the courthouse or in the street. And a lot of what I did was so-called street law. was the kind of situation that I describe in the poem with uh, an emergency that you and you feel bound to try something to do something that world is still very much uh, out there and it's not that far away uh, your program is based in Springfield right this is happening in Springfield every winter mm-hmm. I guarantee you oh yeah for sure I mean it happens everywhere I lived for more years than I'd like to admit in East Hampton without heat with no repercussions to to my landlord. Um, Absolutely. And part of that was a bit of fear of bringing it up with them because I am brown. So I think a really interesting aspect of your poetry, and I'm going to do a bad thing and reference a poem that probably isn't getting read today, but the one that you did read, I think, dovetails with the assassination of the landlord's purple vintage 1976 Monte Carlo really well in an interesting way that you see throughout your work where you take these larger things and kind of reduce them down to the person. How does that reduction connect you with with those situations and with the people reading? Well, in the case of the poem you're referencing, and you're right, I don't have it in front of me, what I would call the Monte Carlo poem, and I just want to stress here that I do not own and have never owned a Monte Carlo or any car like it. Um, I had a landlord who parked his Monte Carlo at the edge of a very long driveway 
uh, which he did not treat. And so it was dangerous enough so that one morning my wife, in the dark, on her way to work as a teacher in Springfield, slipped, fell, and cracked her head and ended up with a concussion. And so I took a form of revenge in the poem. We didn't have heat there, and we had to do battle with the landlord. Now, the landlord discovers that the tenant is, in fact, a tenant lawyer. That does change the terms of the equation a little bit. Um, when you can talk about things like the state sanitary code, you could threaten to withhold rent, all of a sudden, landlords tremble. Um, and I only wish more tenants knew their rights, more tenants had uh, representation, and that we could start to turn around the imbalance of power that you're talking about. Coming up, more with poet and professor of English Martina Spada, including more of his work and how that has evolved over the years. And we'll talk about accidental self-inflicted wounds like I gave myself over the weekend. You can text us your most embarrassing home improvement gone crazy story, as Gary the emailer calls him. You can email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We're speaking with Martina Spada, UMass professor, Shelburne Falls resident, the first poet laureate of Northampton back in 2001. He's won virtually all the big poetry prizes that one can win, the Ruth Lilly Prize winner in 2018. His latest book, Floaters, won the National Book Award in 2021. Can we hear another poem, Martine? We certainly can. This is a poem called Big Bird Died for Your Sins, and this is a request because, I mean, we work for public media now, so when you have a poem <laughs> about Big Bird, we kind of, yeah. I, we definitely I want to hear. Stress, I want to stress before I get started, it's not that Big Bird. <laughs> um, I was, just a bit of background, I was recently uh, doing a reading in Sarasota, Florida. And at just about that time, or immediately prior to my arrival, a children's book called Roberto Clemente, Pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates, had been pulled from the shelves of the Duval County Public Schools. Uh, and it was eventually reinstated after a nationwide outcry. But that led me to read the following poem, which has something to do with Roberto Clemente, among other things. Now, uh, Puerto Rican Baseball Hall of Famer Roberto Clemente died on New Year's Eve 1972, uh, delivering earthquake supplies to Nicaragua. Uh, at the time, I was 15 years old. I was living in Valley Stream, Long Island, had just moved out of Brooklyn, and of course we were the only Puerto Rican family on the block, uh, of course. Mm -hmm. So this poem is called, Big Bird Died for Your Sins. Barry was six foot six, 15 like me, floating layups and hook shots over our heads through the hoop in my driveway. We called him Big Bird for dwarfing us, for his slappy feet, for the mouth that hung in a grin at all our stories. We called him Big Bird because he would yell foul every time anyone bumped him under the basket as if we lived on Sesame Street. I liked Big Bird and his white boy afro. He never called me a greasy-haired spick under the hoop in my own driveway like Frankie, the clown on the block. On New Year's Eve, 
Roberto Clemente himself set foot on the prop plane at the airport of Puerto Rico, my father's island. Boxes for Nicaragua stacked up after the earthquake, knowing the dictator's Guardia Nacional would crack open the crates, greedy as a pillaging army if he did not loom over them. The DC-7 engine like a smoker's heart, 4,000 pounds overweight, sputtered a hundred feet above the trees and spiraled into the sea on a night when the moon deserted the sky, the keeper of a lighthouse dreaming drunk. A crowd kept vigil on the beach. His compañero, the catcher, dove and dove again between the fins that sliced the waves till the propeller's twisted hand rose from the sea, but never the body, never the ball player, never Clemente, never. My father told me, Roberto Clemente is dead. I could swear my father's eyes were red. I had never seen my father cry. This must be hay fever in winter. My mother saw him cry once, watching the funeral of JFK on television, the black riderless horse and the empty boots in the stirrups for the fallen. Later, the day after the baseball writers voted Clemente into the Hall of Fame, as the boys under the hoop toweled off and scooped up cokes from a cooler, I said, when my father told me Clemente died, there were tears in his eyes. No one said anything, not even Frankie the Clown. Big Bird stopped grinning. Big Bird was thinking. The whine in his voice was gone when he finally said, they only did that because he was Puerto Rican. They only did that because he was black. There was once an episode on Sesame Street where Luisa Maria taught Big Bird about the meaning of death, how we all die one day, and his yellow head drooped heavy as a sunflower. I feel sad, he said. I could have rolled the numbers out like the dice in my Stratomatic baseball board game. 317, lifetime average. 414 in the 1971 series. 3,000 hits. 12 gold gloves, the only walk-off inside the park grand slam in baseball history. I could have called on the spirit of a dead ball player to flood the screens in their heads with the leap and stab of the ball against the wall in right field that saved a no-hitter, the bark of the ball off his bat that fractured a pitcher's leg. I said nothing. I never said anything even when Frankie would croon his favorite song in my face, Spicka Spooka. The other boys would bathe in it. The next game began. I guarded Big Bird. I stomped on his slappy feet, spiked my elbows into his rib cage, rammed shoulder after shoulder into his back, blocked shots by jamming the ball into his chest. I knew nothing of karate, but kicked the air every time I yanked a rebound away. Foul, yelled Big Bird, like a song on the jukebox nobody wanted to hear. Foul. 
This was my hoop, so I couldn't fall out. I wanted to see Big Bird cry, like I saw my father cry. Big Bird sniffed. No one saw him sneeze. He squinted hard, but we all knew. That day, Big Bird died for the sins of the fathers who cursed at the dark ball players on TV in the living room where their sons could hear it all. I had a vision of Big Bird rising above the palm trees, igniting in the air like a feathery piñata too close to the spark of a cigarette, crashing into the sea, the sharks feasting on yellow feathers, Luis and Maria on Sesame Street explaining the meaning of a puppet's death as the nation mourned. The unmistakable voice of Martina Spada from Shelburne Falls, UMass professor, National Book Award winner for his book, Floaters. What a powerful poem, Big Bird Died for Your Sins. He'll be reading tomorrow at Greenfield Community College, 6 p.m. in the GCC Library. It's free and open to the public. So you moved to the area to teach English at UMass. What has changed in the landscape of poetry that you've seen in your students, and what's changed in the landscape of poetry in your work? over the years that you've been here? Hmm. Well, what's changed in my own work, I can more easily identify. <laughs> I, I hope I've become better at this. <laughs> you know, when I moved here, it was in 1993. That was a long time ago, 30 years by my count. Um, I, I hope I'm better at what I do. <laughs> Um, I hope the, the images are, are stronger. I hope the, the diction, the vocabulary is, is more accurate, more precise. Um, I hope the, the narratives are, are more clear and, uh, that the, the, the poetry and the politics uh, balance each other better. There are all kinds of ways in which I think about my own craft as a poet, um, obviously I've changed as a person. I'm now 65 years old, technically eligible for the senior discount at the movie theater. <laughs> take it. I know. I was about to say, take advantage. <laughs> Movies are not cheap. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the first time I went up to the window, the th I said, no, I can't do it. <laughs> um, I'm 64, damn it. Um, but, you know, that's that's the way I reflect on, you know, sort of looking back at the last 30 years of myself as a poet, uh, that I'm, I'm, always, uh, I'm always working at it. I'm always trying uh, to write uh, better than I did before. That, that's the way I would address that question. Martina Spada, who will be speaking tomorrow at Greenfield Community College, reading from Floaters and more, or from your National Book Award winning uh, book, Floaters, m mostly, Martine? Well, I'll be reading from Floaters, but I'll also be reading a few new poems. Time to get a few new batters into the lineup. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for new work. It's free and open to the public, as I mentioned, 6 p.m. at the GCC Library tomorrow evening. Thank you so much for joining us, Martine. It's what a great way to continue the celebration of National Poetry Month on these airwaves. Well, many thanks to both of you. We appreciate it. And again, thanks to Martina Spada for joining us. We're now going to talk about 
terrible things that Monty has done to himself. But first, actually, we got a question about what the tofu curtain is. Yes, when we were talking with Wayfinders earlier in the show, we mentioned the tofu curtain, and I, I glossed over it rather quickly, uh, but we got an anonymous voicemail saying, I don't think... Uh, this is the right mailbox, but I just tuned in. <laughs> I'm driving, and I heard your guest say what I was thinking was the tofu curtain multiple times, referring to, I believe, Springfield. So to clarify, the tofu curtain, according to Wikipedia, which has its own page, and I know this was something that Merriam-Webster is also watching for inclusion into the dictionary, the tofu curtain is a cultural or socioeconomic divide between two geographic regions of Massachusetts and the people who reside in them. With the concept of tofu symbolizing certain lifestyles and political leanings, the term is going to identify trends on either side of a county line in the quote-unquote Pioneer Valley along the Connecticut River in Massachusetts. I always think of it as the actual physical Holyoke Range, the mountains that divide the two counties of Hampshire and Hamden. And then again, as this article mentions, the socioeconomic divide, uh, racial divide. Therein. So hopefully that clarifies that for our uh, anonymous uh, caller. Yes. And so now we get to how Monty broke his finger this weekend. Yeah. Well, I do some home improvement projects poorly. And <laughs> I bought a house in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, uh, 20 years ago. And when I was 25 years old, and you see there's a whole house that costs less than you're renting a tiny little apartment in Amherst, and there's a hot tub on the porch, you buy that house. Uh, it's a, not the greatest house in the whole world, but we love the neighborhood and we love the community. But it came time, since that hot tub was like a drowning hazard for my children, to finally get rid of the hot tub. Now that the children are practically grown, we decide to finally get rid of the hot tub. Uh, now that I, they could like use it safely. Yes, now you it, get rid of the it, it hot did tub. leak and there were all sorts of other problems. You had to run it all winter if you didn't want it to crack. <laughs> I finally decided I'm going to take a sawzall and a, and a sledgehammer or and a crowbar and destroy the hot tub. Sawzall was working pretty well, but I thought I could speed it up if I smashed it with a hammer and a crowbar. And a big swing and a miss with the crowbar clipped my finger on the lip of the hot tub. I immediately began to bleed profusely, but with toxic masculinity, bandaged it up, put a latex glove on, and went back to destroying the hot tub until my latex glove turned into a balloon filled with blood. And then I finally did a, a, a like a visual doctor's conference, and they said, you're going to bleed for days if you don't go to get this taken care of, long story short, three stitches, and I broke the tip of my finger off. So the x-ray shows a little floating broken bone tip. That is my dumb home improvement injury. And we also, we got someone to commiserate. We did. Jerry, Gary Young wrote us and said, I was replacing some thin wooden molding around a doorway with a screw gun. I went through the molding and into my hand on the other side with the screw. I screwed myself to the door frame. I couldn't easily remove the screw. I had to reverse the drill to release my hand from the screw. And needless to say, I was very happy no one was around to see my act of self-mutilation. We hope you're okay. And apologies in advance to anybody who's a little squeamish yes. about talking about blood because we definitely are. <laughs> and if you are not squeamish and want to see some of the gross pictures of what I did to my hand, you can see it on our social media pages. Our engineer, Betsy Cordes, would you like to relay this story in your own voice about your own family's uh, self-inflicted home improvement injury? Sure. I just have my husband, Bill, who... 
uh, was splitting logs in a fancy log splitter that he bought. And the one thing is that you're supposed to like let go of the log once it gets into log splitter, and he did not let go of the log. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe oh. it got jammed. But either way, his hand followed the log <gasps> and then got stuck in the log splitter and crushed via log. Uh. Uh, and it was very injured and bleeding a little, but not as bad as your sounds. Well, no, mine, I think that sounds a lot worse, frankly. Yeah. And like table saws and things that I've used in the past can be very dangerous. And I try to be very careful. The last thing I thought I was going to do was break my finger by swinging uh, a crowbar. It, so, And then I apologize in advance, Greg Solomon, but I'm telling your story. So <laughs> a member of one of my bands, a week before we had a show at uh, the Sierra Grill RIP, he had an incident with a immersion blender over Thanksgiving that nearly took his finger, the tip of his finger off. He did have an emergency room visit that did save it, but he couldn't play guitar for that show and instead was our impromptu keyboard player. I have fat finger syndrome even trying to type now with my broken tip of my finger. Yeah, and it's going to be stitches. real bad when you lose that fingernail and you're gonna. I know. I am gonna. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, well, we won't send any gross graphic pictures of that. But, it, I mean, the uh, the x-ray is clinical enough that it's fun to see my it floating is. little tip of bone. And so that will be on our, <laughs> our social media feed a little bit later. And thanks for those commiserating injury stories. Tomorrow in the Fabulous 413, we'll take a deep dive into the world of local malt and local flour as we tour Valley Malt and ground up flour mill on the banks of the canal in Holyoke. We'll hear how they helped kickstart a renaissance of local malt and milled flour in the Northeast, and we'll talk to a local baker about how to better bake with better flour. And we'll talk with Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. Are you feeling gruntled? Yes. Are you looking sheveled? Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about how opposites sound less attractive. Our director is Tony. It's all good things done. Our bets in Our bets in Our bets in <laughs> It's like what you, it's what you wear to prom. Right. Our engineer is Betsy. This is not what chocolate should taste like, Cortis. Our technical team is Bart. Got a present for Tony Rankin. Kara, it's a work day, not a moving day, Foster. And Punk Rock Dubay. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.